Hello, friends. This episode of the Pod and Order podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Animal Stone. Animal Stone connects people to animals through solid sterling silver and solid 14 karat gold animal charms. Browse the full collection at animalstone.com to find your favorite animal and use code PAUSE10 for 10% off your order. Proceeds from the sale of 10 animals goes back to wildlife conservation. Elemento is an online market filled with Canadian organic and natural goods. Choose from hundreds of sustainable and plant-based products at Elemento.com and have them delivered straight to your door. Shopping for delicious, nutritious, and organic plant-based foods has never been easier. Use code PAUSE15 to receive 15% off your next order. That's E-L-I-M-E-N-T-O dot com. And finally, this episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system. Animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. All right, hello and welcome to episode number 66 of Paw and Order. My name is Peter Sankoff. I'm here today with my co-host, Camille Labchuk. Hey, Camille, how you doing? I'm doing good, Peter. It's nice to have you back in the host chair. Yeah, yeah. Good to be back, Camille. <laughs> it is. It is good to be back in the host chair. Feels like ages ago that I was here. I guess that's what happens when I'm down to once a month. Yeah, it's, you know, it's every month. How are you? I don't know, Camille. I'm feeling a little, uh, a little COVID bluesed out. I have to admit this uh, third wave has sort of, um, you know, it's just, it's kind of depressing. I'll be honest. You read about it every day. Um, I, I should say, let me just say uh, the obvious, like, you know, healthy in my half family. So, you know, for those people carefully listening, uh, he- healthy in my family. And, and most importantly, there have been no outbreaks at my kid's school. If you want to hear me really depressed, Camille, just sent my kids home from school for a couple of weeks. My kids, but before... Since the last episode, when when you and I recorded, not since the last episode, both my kids had the sniffles on separate weeks. So like Penny had the sniffles for a week and it took a week to get that. And in fairness, let me say the the COVID testing here was very quick. She she actually got it. She was sick on Wednesday. By Friday, she had her negative COVID test, but it was too late to go to school. So she missed three days of school and she was home. Um, That was okay. We managed to live with that. Then my son was home for the better part of a week. And as... Uh 
listeners of the show know. Um, my son is the more challenging of the my two children. And I say that, I could say for a lot of reasons, but for the only reason that's pertinent to this show, he just, he's not as good self-entertainer as my daughter. Like my daughter will go and she'll start doing a drawing and she'll be off for like a couple hours. Whereas my son, if you're not entertaining him, he's going to start annoying you. So that was a challenging week. That's rough. I think that's every parent's nightmare right now is schools closing and having to go back to this, you know, lockdown thing where everyone's home all the time. So I feel your pain. Yeah, I gotta say it's yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, you know, I think everyone's spirits are kind of a little low at this point. It's, it's hard to like look to the future and see anything have anything to look forward to, which is something that I'm struggling with because I usually have a trip or a conference or some exciting thing where I get to see international animal law friends and gallivant around, as you know, Peter. Gallivant, yes. But these days... You deserve it, Camille. Really, I would love nothing more than to hear about you gallivanting. I know, I know. I'd like to get back to it <laughs> just for you. We'd all love to hear it. It's been tough. I, I agree. I share those feelings in every sense of the word. I mean, as you know, so we bought a new house during COVID. We just, we, and, and let me say that we had been sort of looking for a house off and on, not that seriously for a little while. We had been thinking about moving and we made the decision during COVID that it was something we wanted to do. And 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 COVID was part of that. We thought that the it would affect the market, which it did. And we felt that it would it would just be something we could do. We could create more space that we needed in our house and we could do things. And that has been really great. Like getting into a new house has been a really positive thing. Um, but even that like it's starting okay well the house is almost set up and I like being here but it is amazing you're so right how you know aside from work it's like there's just not that much to feel like I'm getting up for um excitement wise like it's really it's really hard and I do miss friends and I do miss family and I miss all that and it's like it feels like every encounter, especially as the weather, Camille, last week here in Edmonton was in the negatives. It's back up again. It's back up to 10 degrees, which is better. But it was like negative five for last most last week. So it's like the outdoor meetups with people are, are over or ending. Um, and that has been a real challenge for us here because it just feels like, well, we're back to our family unit and that's it. And it's because everybody's sort of scared to do otherwise or not scared to do otherwise, which is just as frightening. I know I'm struggling with that right now. I've been pretty careful throughout this. I'm not socializing with people. I'm not doing things indoors. And I see a lot of people still doing that on social media posts. And, you know, it's contrary to what the public health officers are recommending right now. And I I find it uh, challenging to deal with. Like, it's, it's just... You know, I, I appreciate how much it sucks for everybody, but I did see something on the internet the other day that kind of made me feel better about the situation, which is like some kind of tweet that went viral about like how maybe you've been suffering during this whole period, but just think if you hadn't been doing what you've been doing and staying home and isolating and keeping away from other people, um, you could have been responsible for sicknesses and even deaths of others. And so what you're doing is working. So I try to remember that. But then on the other hand, I think about how this time last year, Peter, I think I was in Edmonton celebrating your 50th birthday party. Yeah. And just I miss those days when we could do things. 
Yeah, totally. It's 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 like your brain versus well, part of your brain versus the rest of your brain, and it's really it's it's easy to rationalize. I mean, it's so ridiculous. It's like we're such a spoiled generation in that sense because like we have every means of in-home entertainment that's ever existed and it's so far beyond what was available i mean forget about when i was a kid if this has happened like what it would be like like i'd be dangling from a rope by the end of this it was like with my three channels to choose from no internet (laughs) i mean how many books can you read but like i was trying to like i was trying to like my wife was talking about something and i was like it's amazing how quickly we get like we're such a spoiled generation in the sense of we get bored we get tired and i don't want to minimize that cuz i do think the mental health stuff is real but i was like my grandmother was like <laughs> my grandmother like immigrated from romania before the war by boat and was like here in 1936 as her family was getting rounded up by the Nazis and like had no communication with them as this was going on for a period of five years. It's just like, it's, it's like, it's, it's such a different world. And it's like, it's, it's, it's really, I know that sounds like ages ago, but it's not that long ago. And it's like, it's a period of time when like this was normal, like slowness and not being able to see things, not be able to do things. I guess my point is like things have been worse is I guess my point and it's like it's crazy how but but I I totally agree because I I feel it too I feel like this deep sense of malaise and lack of things to look forward to and all of that but at the same time like part of me is chastising myself for saying how dare you feel that you're the most privileged entitled generation there is I know I know well, I don't think we can beat ourselves up for feeling the way we feel about the situation because it frankly just sucks. There's nothing awesome. Yeah, I think we can say it objectively sucks in any generation. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's not like yeah. it didn't suck for my grandmother. It sucked for her too. So it does suck. I do get that. But, uh, you know, it is at least nice that like here I am looking at you. We're, we're doing this conversation on Zoom, by the way, which which is funny, Camille, because before the, the before COVID, we never did it on Zoom. We just did it on the phone. But now I feel like just that search for human connection to see someone else's <laughs> eyes. It's like so strong. I have to put you on Zoom today. I know, I know. I was surprised when you suggested it, but then I was like, okay, that's cool. It would be nice to see another face and not just stay indoors by myself all day, which is how many of my days unfold. Well, in terms of let's just end this on, not end this because we haven't even started the episode, but like end this discussion on a happy note because we were looking for something to look forward to, Camille. And just before we started this podcast, we we talked about something that that I am I am really looking forward to because it was one of the highlights of last year's pollen order season. We have just it's now just not counting today, Camille. It's three episodes away. We are just three episodes away from our Christmas extravaganza, which is our twelve days <laughs> of Christmas well, holiday holiday our twelve days of holiday season giving. And this time it will be the first time where there will be thirty six gifts because we'll be. Bringing Bringing in our other co-host, Jessica Scott-Reed, to give out 36 gifts for the 12 days of Christmas. This is going to be quite a blowout extravaganza in mid-December. There there you go. We wanted something to look forward to, and now you've got it. Now we've got it, and now hopefully all you listeners do too. So I'm optimistic that the thought of this 
extravaganza is going to keep you going for the rest of 2020. <laughs> Me too. So much. Well, I mean, so how much, can it so not? Much to, uh, so many gifts to shop for and plan for. Oh my God. It's going to be crazy. Yeah. Well, on to some other fun stuff. So I wanted to mention um, something that came across my desk yesterday. It was uh, some articles from the Ontario Farmer, which a friend actually mailed to me, cut them out of the newspaper and mailed them. And uh, the Ontario co- uh, Farmer devoted a breathless two-page spa- two special spread to coverage of the Animal Law Conference, of our conference, which took place in September. So it was really interesting, Peter. Uh, they they covered a bunch of the sessions, uh, pretty much ones dealing with farming, which would be, of course, their concern. The, the Ontario Farmer, of course, is an industry publication. It's very pro-farming. It covers animal activism pretty regularly and tries to, I guess, keep farmers informed about what animal rights activists are up to. And it covered a session about legal personhood versus property. It covered um, an egg gag panel. It covered another egg gag um, discussion. It covered political efforts to make change for animals. And it covered a session that you were involved in, Peter, along with Delciana Winders and Danielle Duffield about um, challenging industry standards of animal that promote animal cruelty, like specifically the codes of practice and things like that. So, you know, interesting the the tone of the coverage is fairly neutral. It wasn't, you know, um, taking a position against activism. It was sort of mostly reporting what was said, but uh, perhaps as maybe you want to elaborate on a little bit selectively. Um, but uh, it was, and, and I'll talk about that, but I, I do want to share my thoughts that like, by and large, I, I was quite pleased with the coverage in every sense of the word. I think it's great that, uh, as I said, especially because it was, it was, it was neutrally presented by and large, there was no editorial commentary on what was being said. It was essentially a reporting of the conference. So like when they talk about codes, which was the session that I was on, um, good. Like, I think that's good to bring to industry's light what some critics, uh, including myself, are saying about the codes. I, I'm, I couldn't be happier. And I, I and quite frankly, you know, we don't do this often, but I mean, good on Ontario. It's Ontario Farmer. Sorry. Just what's the that's name? right. Ian Cumming. Uh, sorry. But the what's writer. the name of the magazine? It's Ontario. Yeah, it's Ontario Farmer. Ontario it's sort Farmer, of a, like, a weekly again, newspaper publication. Like, I don't I don't know what's being made of it, but certainly I think the coverage was presented by and large fairly, and I have no issues. I mean, the only thing I would say about it at times, like, it was selective in the sense of from the conversation they took um, from my presentation, it was a little bit selective in the way it was presenting things that had been said. So what I mean by that is if wherever I said something favorable to NFAC and the codes, that was inserted. And wherever I said something that was at the edge of the extreme, like, you know, when I would make a comment occasionally a bit facetiously, that gets reported too. So like anything at the two extremes was what I felt was really being reported. And at times the guts of, um, um, of some of the critique, which I think is was really the core of the presentation, didn't quite make it in. But honestly, that's a, a pretty that's a pretty small nitpick. By and large, I thought the coverage was 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 quite neutral and seemed to be a fair representation of what was put out there. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. They definitely pulled out the stuff that would get farmers most up in arms. Um, you know, the headline about the egg gag panel, for instance, was activists believe trespassing, entry, or part of free speech, which is not really what was said in the panel. I don't think anybody's yeah, arguing that headli- trespassing headlines is... Headlines were a little bit... Headlines were. Although I will just say, if, if Ontario Farmer 
is anything like any other newspaper. The the writer usually doesn't control the headline, but I, I don't know if that's true at Ontario Farmer. Yeah, I've got I've got no idea. But you know, interesting all the same. And I gotta say I'm happy they're covering the conference. It shows me that we're on the right track if the opposition, which, you know, I think this newspaper would describe themselves as opposed to the work that animal justice and most animal rights lawyers do. Um, if the opposition's paying attention to you, it means you're doing something right. So thanks, Ian, for showing up to the conference. We appreciate your articles. Damn straight. What else is going on? There is there is more, Camille. Yeah, well, okay, speaking of conferences, I wanted to quickly give a shout out to Humane Canada, which is holding their own conference, not an animal law focused conference, it's uh, animal welfare issues, but law is one of the topics that they're covering. And they're in the midst of soliciting uh, applications for presentations. That could be a standalone talk, a panel presentation, some other format. And I'm going to share the link to their conference in the show notes. But I believe that um, submissions close in early November. So there's still time if any of you are listening who are lawyers or students or want to speak about an animal law conference or maybe a more general animal welfare topic, um, there's an opportunity to apply. So check it out if you want to. Uh, consider that. What, when is the conference, then, Camille? Um, the conference itself, I don't have that in front of me, but it's it's sometime like in April or May. It's not until this oh, spring. Oh, some way off. Okay. Yeah. And it's obviously good at this point, all going to be online. So but uh, of very course, accessible for people. Footnote, see earlier discussion. <laughs> all, footnote, all footnote, nothing online. to look forward oh to in person. Oh, gosh, I pine for the days of in-person conferences. One day, 2022. Wait, wait, Camille, hold on. We're going to go back, but can can we just like, if we just want to put like one last hammer into the crazy nail of this whole discussion. I was talking with some of my friends in New Zealand and like, do you know that like in Australia and New Zealand, they're already talking about travel bans through the end of 2022. (laughs) what what like mind exploding i'm like oh i wish you hadn't said that (laughs) oh my god i couldn't believe it when i heard it i was like you've got to be kidding and i'm like no and it's it's anyway i'm on uh sabbatical i forgot to mention to you i'm going on sabbatical i've been approved for sabbatical next uh september so as of like april may i'm done i'm as of when i finish marking exams in april i'm finished for the year and i don't have to go back until january but like i had some hopes of doing some traveling but I mean, we'll see fall of 2021 i would suggest get the heck out of the country go to somewhere without covid like in new zealand apparently they're filling up soccer stadiums again because it's been eradicated in in the country well so while we're talking the heck about out of new zealand of course like i could go to new zealand in theory because they're only admitting citizens at the moment so like in theory my entire family could go to new zealand that the downsides of doing that are twofold <laughs> It's crazy. It's such a crazy situation. Like, it's so attractive. I could spend the whole fall in New Zealand, right? I could do it. My kids could get pulled out of school. No problem. Go to school there. All good. There's only two problems. Problem number one, the quarantine rules are still in effect. So you've got to pay something like, it's like $3,000 per hotel room for a, a short term you know, 10 day, whatever. So it's really not cheap to go there. Like, you really got to want to go there. And of course, like, there are limited commercial flights. So at the time, that's the other problem is that the commercial flight prices have skyrocketed because like ordinary New Zealanders are not doing travel. It's essentially just for limited, you know, commercial stuff and things like that. So like the, the, getting there is no small task. So you're talking about 
if you want to escape to New Zealand to get away from COVID, it's a very expensive proposition. Oh, point taken. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, (laughs) when we get back to conferences, I'm just going to be happy to get a, you know, a a cloth bag with a notepad and a pen with the conference branding on it. And, you know, the crappy food it breaks. I want nothing else other than that situation to return to my life. Absolutely. But sorry for the digression listeners. (laughs) I want to highlight one more cool thing going on right now. Uh, UBC's Allard School of Law now has an animal law clinic, which was spearheaded, Peter, by the students in the Animal Justice Association at UBC, wow. which is so cool. Good for them. It's, uh, it's a clinic that may be able to offer advice to uh, clients who have animal law issues. So this might be something like, say, veterinary malpractice. If you're somebody who's concerned that your pet has been mistreated by a veterinarian and injured or, God forbid, died, uh, you could call that clinic. There's no guarantee they can help you. I know they've got certain criteria, but... We're going to be providing some more information about this and hopefully through a a link to a blog post in the show notes. So if you're in the Vancouver area and uh, this might help you out, I encourage you to check it out. So it's 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 really interesting on a number of levels. I hadn't even heard about this and I, I think it's a really cool thing. And I'll tell you why. Like law clinics and law schools are make sense in a number of particular settings. And one of them is where the costs of pursuing litigation through a lawyer usually outweighs the benefits of doing so. So a clinic of this sort is really has the potential to be something quite powerful. And, and I say this as someone who has done a few of these cases and also has turned down more of these cases than I can handle. I'm going to say, um, I, I don't get a ton of them, but just as one person, I would say I get eight to 10 requests a year from potential clients about animal law matters that I simply can't or won't handle. Um, the won't part of it is where I won't handle it because it's not within the interests of the types of outcomes I'm trying to pursue. So just for an example, uh, I generally won't do um, um, stuff where there's some sort of adoption contract and somebody wants to take the dog. Like I'm not interested in helping dispute with a breeder or something like that. I'm not interested in that. The breeder stuff marginally more because if I can sue and shut down the breeder in some way, that to me is interesting. But, but you're right. Like as a general matter, I tend not to, but it's like I get eight to 10 of those breach of contract, negligent stuff, property disputes. Uh, My dog's going to be put down and I generally don't do them mainly because I don't have the time. And, uh, I, I can't get into every animal case that comes my way when I have a full criminal law course caseload. So I tend to do only the animal law cases that have the most resonance, I think, overall. So I actually think there is a lot of room for for people to find a one-stop shop with advice. And I think a clinic is a great way to do that or some other model, uh, any type of pro bono community clinic. I do think there is a way to to in a larger sense try to hold people who think they can do whatever they want in an animal scenario to account because they they don't have to worry about the 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 legal system coming after them because it's too expensive for people to do it and the 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 potential for return is too small yeah 
Yeah, so this could be a really good compliment to the work that lawyers in private practice can do, to the work that animal justice can do. I, I can tell you that we also get email inquiries all the time from people who've got these individual problems. Um, a lot of it tends to be veterinarian issues. Um, sometimes it's adoption contracts or breeding issues. Insurance, and animal insurance stuff. There's tons of them. Breeders. Yeah, breeders tons of stuff. is a big one. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the emails we get are about breeders. And it's just not something that we can help with because animal justice doesn't act like a law firm. We take on cases ourselves and don't represent clients. Uh, so and then, you know, on the other side of things, oftentimes people are low income and might not have the funds to pay a private yeah. lawyer. So I think this is a really good well, way and, of um, and on top trying to of that, help people. It's, it's really hard even for a lawyer with a good heart who wants to do it. I know there are some lawyers doing private practice and there are certain cases where you can bill the, the private practice. But as you point out, in a lot of these situations, like there's only so much I can bill out. Like you get one of these adoption contracts, even when you have someone who's keen, like, I, and I'm not, I'm not trying to get rich on these ever. I've always billed low amounts for, for clients, but at the same time, like the work is intensive. Once you get into trying to, it's not like a quick and dirty case. You're always at the edges of the law or on the margins and you're trying to run interesting or innovative arguments. And it's like, these things are costly. Like, you know, it, it, let's just say for a, a garden variety type of case like that, like I've managed to do a few of them for, for two to $3,000. And that's like making clear to the client that if it becomes anything other than a negotiated process, it's going to cost way more than that. Like once you get to the point where you, negotiations break down and essentially the initial help by a lawyer, just for those of you who don't know, is usually to try and negotiate something, right? To try and get a resolution. But if that breaks down and you have to actually start using the legal process, I, it, it's it's like it's not common that people in these sorts of situations suing vets or suing whatever can get into the tens of thousands that would be required to pursue it properly. So it's like it is a tricky situation and too many, too many in the animal industry. And that's, you know, that's a very broad comment. But those who use or are involved in animal services or paying for fees for animal services are like, it, it's too easy for them to get away with it. Because like, there's just it's hard to bring them to account because of some of the structural inadequacies of animal law and the way it works. Yeah, and we've spoken on this podcast before. I think we devoted an entire episode to it at one point, but just about some of those structural inadequacies and including, importantly, this idea that the damages you might get for, uh, you know, a finding of liability in relation to the way someone's treated your animal are low. They're usually typically much less than you would pay in legal fees to secure that amount. So there becomes a disincentive to pursue these cases if there's a hefty legal bill and not much possibility of recovering any funds or seeking, you know, justice in that way. Now, some people take them on for other reasons. They want to seek justice and they're not worried about the money. But, you know, all of that to say, I think this clinic is a great idea. Also a very cool chance for students to get their hands dirty a little bit in animal law and get that experience while they're still studying. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, 
just one more kind of quick note before we move on to other things. Our annual crowd fundraising campaign, Voiceless for Animal Justice, launched last week. And so far, it is going great. People are signing up and uh, supporting the initiative. So just a refresher on what it is. Voiceless for Animal Justice is a National Day of Silence on November 14th. So people participating in this challenge are collecting pledges from their friends, their families, their colleagues, their networks. And uh, we're all going to go silent post on social media about it on November 14th. The rules are that you can't talk, but you can still text and communicate online. So you can post about your experience and what it's like to shut up for 24 hours. Not easy for me. I must say we've done this now twice already. I did not successfully last all day either of those <gasps> occasions. <laughs> I want my money f- back, Camille. For shame. I know. I well, I was transparent. I told behalf. people. I told people that I failed. Um, I think the effort is what counts, at least I hope, A for effort. But the first the first year, 2018, I was great all day. Um, you know, I think I said something to my cat in the morning and then I was like, oh, can't do that again. But when I got home from work, my city councillor was there campaigning and knocking on doors I remember this story. outside of my house. Yeah. And I was so excited to see him so I could talk about animal issues that I completely forgot about the Day of Silence. And I was like, oh, what are you going to do with animal rights? Here's all these issues I care about. And it was a great conversation. And then halfway through, I was like, oh, no. So I hope people will forgive me. This year, Peter, I'm going to see if I can make it the full 24 hours. I sure hope so, Camille. I am, uh, as always, not going to try. (laughs) This will be my third year sitting on the sidelines. I'm very supportive in spirit, and I'm sure I will kick a few dollars the animal justice team way. (laughs) But uh, I I feel I have enough going on right now, and I have a hearing that week, so I am not going to be even pretending to be voiceless for 24 hours. I will instead support those like Camille who can do it. Go get them, Camille. And that's the thing. You can sign up to go voiceless yourself or you can kick a few bucks towards the people who are taking on this challenge. And I should also note, Peter, that this year, the idea of going voiceless has kind of a special meaning mm. because the, the, the fundraising is focused on our work to combat a gag laws. And as all of you listeners know, a gag laws silence activists, they silence undercover investigators and eyewitnesses. And they also importantly silence animals whose voices are even less likely to be heard because of this ban on undercover investigations. So really important issue this year. And uh, if you want to visit the website for this and participate in Voiceless for Animal Justice by becoming a donor or a participant, you can check out the link in the show notes. Go get them. All right. Now, here's your uh, every episode reminder to leave us a review if you enjoy listening to Paw and Order. We have over 100 five-star reviews. And I just wanted to highlight one of those new reviews, Peter, because it's, uh, it's a short one, but it's a nice one. So it is from, well, the, the sizzle. 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 With like five S's. Five S's, <laughs> Sizzle. I like your name, Sizzle. It's a great name. And Sizzle says, great podcast. I'm a new law student and I've really enjoyed supplementing my studies with this animal law content. Great podcast. Uh, That's what we're here for. We're here to help students get engaged in the issues. And I know a lot of you listening are students. So thanks for leaving a review. And if you haven't yet, consider doing so. Short and sweet. 
And a reminder, by the way, that you can also support us on Patreon. We have our own Patreon page for as little as $1 a month. Uh, $1. $1 a month. And uh, we have a, a variety of support levels and can tell you that uh, the Patreon page is really essential to keep us uh, doing what we're doing. Um, we try to offer regular prizes for our patrons and, of course, all of our love and all the touchy-feelies. Thanks so much to all our Patreon supporters. You can uh, catch us at it's patreon.com slash pawn order, isn't it, Camille? Indeed it is. All right. Well, we're going to move on to the news in a second. And after that, I'm going to uh, share with you my interview with Dr. Pamela Ferguson, RD, that means registered dietitian, where we are going to get into all things dairy, um, including some of the nefarious ways that the dairy industry advertises to promote its products. But first, Peter, the news. Yeah, let's get into the news. And there, are the the first story we've got today was a um, it was a really interesting one that crossed the website of uh, the CBC, and it's by um, a reporter who works for the CBC, uh, Hazel Hollingdale, and um, it, it's. It's well, actually, sorry, I'm not sure she is a reporter working for the CBC. I shouldn't say that. It it came out on uh, on the CBC's website. Um, but Hazel Hollingdale uh, wrote a really interesting piece, which we will link to, of course, in the show notes, um, talking about an animal cruelty case that was very personal to her because uh, her neighbor killed the family dog, and then they tried to get something done about it and encountered. A lot of frustrations and a lot of hurdles in getting an animal cruelty case brought to justice. Things we've talked about before on this show, but uh, the article by Hazel Hollingdale really brought it into focus. Yeah, it's a heartbreaking story. So she talks about how their family dog, uh, Maybe, was outside. Um, Hazel and her partner were just steps behind the dog, Maybe. Um, They heard barking and then they heard a gunshot and then they found their neighbor walking out from a bush with a rifle at his side and he claimed to have seen Maybe run towards their house. So they searched all all, all over the island that they live on for Maybe, didn't find her. Eventually they found blood and gore only three meters from where he'd been standing with his rifle and uh, it turns out that he admitted that he'd buried her on an empty lot with his backhoe um, and concealed that fact well, they were searching for maybe for two weeks. Um, he said he confessed to killing her, her in a rage. And then, of course, um, later confessed uh, to having done this. And I, I guess a neighbor um, that he confessed to convinced him to return her body to Hazel and her partner. So, oh, my God, what a sad story. But the interesting part, Peter, is kind of what happens next. Yeah, it's a terrible story. Um, this is all, of course, taking place um, in the pre-COVID environment. Let me make that clear, because there's a couple of times when <laughs> various people refuse to meet with them. And I was thinking, oh, well, COVID, I can sort of get that. No, this is all pre-COVID. This is back in, uh, in the days. But yeah, it was absolutely terrible. They tried to get this matter investigated and ran into problems that are not uncommon and all stem from the seriousness level with which uh, uh, police officers and uh, even crown attorneys in many jurisdictions take matters involving animals. And I guess that is to say not very seriously at all. Because at first, when the RCMP came out, it took the RCMP a week to actually get out. Well, I must say, as someone who's suffered from robberies and stuff, that part of it is not all that surprising. Um, But the RCMP eventually tried to just brush it off and say, well, killing someone's dog is not a criminal offense, which is incorrect, of course. 
Yeah, of course it is. And and they said this is not the that, that was only the first of many misinformed responses from authorities. And that over and over again, whether it's the RCMP, Crown prosecutors or others in the criminal justice system minimized uh, this situation. And I think, Peter, for anyone like like you and I that work in this field and deal with authorities and try to get them to address issues of, of illegal animal cruelty, this really rings true. It's so often the case that the laws on the books are reasonable enough. They're capable of being enforced and capable of addressing situations where animals are suffering or are killed. But the authorities and other justice system actors just aren't really interested. They minimize the impact and they say, oh, they're just animals. Yeah, and that showed up in many ways in this particular case. And one of the ways in which it it, uh, it showed up was, I mean, eventually, given what seems like an airtight case, you've got a confession to a neighbor, you've got a confession to the to the victims, like they've got the evidence. It seems pretty clear cut as to what actually take. I mean, not to mention that they were they, they pretty much had the case. You know, he lies to them when they first see him with the gun. Like there's a, it's a really strong crown case. And what actually happens is he plea bargains out. Now, plea bargains are not uncommon, but essentially this plea bargain is particularly problematic for a number of reasons. He pleads down to a lesser offense for firearms use, right? And it's like, it seems to me, I mean, again, let me be clear, I'm reading this from the CBC story. I, it, Ms. Uh, Hollingdale is not a lawyer, so it's a little difficult to follow exactly what happened. But it seems to me, if I understand this correctly, he pleaded to a regulatory offense involving the firearm. So essentially, it was not a criminal offense for discharging a firearm. He, he pleaded guilty to a regulatory offense. But most importantly, the Crown withdrew the cruelty to animals offense, right? Or the, the, the killing of the dog, which is, uh, I think, Section 444. And by doing so, of course, there's now no record that this man ever did anything to an animal, right? Nothing at all. And of course, no prohibition order to make sure that he's not in a position to take care of animals after the fact, even though he maliciously shot one for no purpose whatsoever. Yeah, now listeners to this podcast know I'm I'm really not a law and order person, despite this podcast being called Law and Order in the sense that I don't think that sentences are the solution to animal cruelty offenses. And I, I you know, I question the value sometimes of the criminal justice system, but at the same time, you can't look at this and not see a pattern where any time an offense involving animals is committed, authorities minimize it or or lay other charges that don't really get at the animal suffering. So just recently, for instance, Peter, I don't know if you saw this, but some pigs fell off of a truck in Ontario, truck taking them to slaughter. And um, it's illegal under the criminal code, under the Provincial Animal Welfare Act, and also under um, federal animal transport regulations for this type of activity to have taken place. The pigs were injured, they had road rash. Um, I think they were eventually probably taken on to slaughter anyway. But the OPP showed up on the scene and laid a charge of failing to secure a load against the driver. Nothing in relation to the animals. And I just think in these situations that if there's going to be action taken, and this is separate from the issue of sentence, that the action taken should reflect the impact on the animals. Well, I think that's true, too. And that's why, like, regardless of I, I, I wasn't, you know, particularly referring to the sentence imposed, I don't really mind a plea bargain for an early guilty plea makes me happy. That's fine. I'm good with that. Uh, but but a guilty plea usually acknowledges some sense of the gravity of what took place. And that's the only way you can get peace 
first of all, in the community, you get the people to recognize, okay, he's admitted doing what he's doing. Well, he hasn't. He's admitted to using a firearm improperly, which is not the essence of the offending that he's ultimately alleged to have taken place. And quite frankly, I think the getting at least uh, some aspect of what he did on his criminal record is essential if you're actually going that there's a reasonable chance that someone who maliciously uh, kills an animal in this way is going to repeat that process. And I think it's important that the the authorities are able to access this person's record and know that he did in fact you know whatever sentence is imposed upon him um, I think the the fact that this was involved in animal is important for properly denouncing what it was that he did and I, I I'm, I'm surprised that you know to completely remove everything um, and substitute it for a, a regulatory fires firearms offense is troubling to me at the very least I would have liked to have seen um, um, uh, a conviction for uh, um, an offense against the Provincial Animal Cruelty Act, which which uh, Animal you know Protection Act, which I'm never a big fan of substituting those charges. But again, to me, the prohibition order and being able to restrict some form of contact to me is more important than any sentence of imprisonment or whatever you want to impose upon him. Yeah, well, I'm going to be really interested to see Hazel Hollingdale's book on this. Um, she's obviously a good writer and has had a compelling experience. Uh, maybe just as a way of wrapping it up, she does note that the SPCAs that are largely vested with the power to recommend charges in these situations, um, most of their investigative costs are not covered by government funding. Again, this goes back to this private enforcement model that we've spoken about critically in the past. And wonders if this um, correlates with you know treating these crimes with less gravity. Uh, than they perhaps deserve. And then she closes by talking about how killing maybe was not a property offense. She says she didn't belong to us. We were a family. An animal's right to life and the lasting effects these violence act, violent acts leaves on families should be factored into how the criminal justice system treats these offenses. And, you know, again, I, I don't think that necessarily should suggest stronger sentences, but I think recognizing that these uh, offenses are important is is not meaningless. And that's a call back to one of our way earlier shows. Camille, this is going back to one of our early, early shows when we were talking about, you know, Nathaniel Erskine Smith's bill that was going to do just that, that the idea was like, because, you know, we're we're not going to get into the need to reform the criminal code. (laughs) And it's like, it's like, that's just, it's funny that as a criminal law professor, like the animal cruelty offenses are, you know, not well constructed. They're in the wrong place. It's like, it's it, my my point would be more compelling if I could say, you know, we have this really well organized criminal code that makes a lot of sense. And these animal cruelty provisions are just right. like everything about the criminal code makes no sense. It's like it's so poorly constructed. The dog's breakfast. It's a dog's breakfast, Camille. That's still that expression still works, doesn't it? It's a dog's <laughs> breakfast. And it's like but but that said, it is troubling and always has been troubling that the animal cruelty provisions remain in the property sections of the code. And in my wish list of things that are unlikely to happen before I leave the mortal coil, um, I'd like to think the criminal code will get reformed and that will be fixed. But it's like, it seems to me there's just no will to do uh, that sort of change, which is kind of unfortunate, by the way, because like, as I said, you'd think that the fact that the criminal code is an utter mess would be like licensed to fix the entire thing but that goes in the too big problem basket, right? So it just doesn't happen. If only we had a law reform commission that could examine and make recommendations for cleaning up this dog's breakfast of a document. If only. 
All right. Well, Peter, our next story is out of British Columbia. It's an article again in CBC about um, how smaller ranchers and livestock slash meat producers are complaining that they don't seem to have enough inspectors for them to slaughter animals um, themselves uh, because qualified inspectors need to be on site when an animal is slaughtered. And they're saying, oh my gosh, we have to keep these animals alive for longer than we want, want to, and it's not cost-effective for us. And they use the example, for instance, Peter, that a lamb is only a lamb for so long, then it becomes mutton, said a rancher from BC. He says he can't find anywhere to process his lambs this year, so they're turning it to sheep, which means that they might drop in value, his meat might drop in value, and his income might suffer. Wow, cry me a river. It's the story is really kind of interesting. Like it just it's it's very revealing in and of itself because of course what the what the the industry wants is you know more more small scale licensing for on farm slaughter and essentially like when you read through this what's really interesting uh, to me Camille is of course like. Like, this story has nothing to do with animal welfare at all. Like, it's just, it's completely an afterthought. And when you read through it, it's it's really interesting that, like, you know, the guy who's arguing um, for, sorry, I take that back. It is not the guy. The woman, uh, Ms. Smith, who's arguing for more slaughter, is making it clear that, like, look, the risk of foodborne illness is really small. So therefore, we should be able to slaughter ourselves. Um, you know, it's they 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 they're sort of almost an inherent implied statement that the issue is not about making sure animals are well treated in the slaughter process. This is really just about foodborne illness. And like, based on what I know about the CFIA, I find it hard to disagree with them. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. Know, no, I-, I know that's not the answer, <laughs> but but it's like. You know, it is it is kind of interesting that this whole discussion is about should we have more on farm slaughter or, or or not? And really, the only issue that seems to be on the table is whether or not that would lead to more human illness. It's not about the process. It's not about whether it can be done correctly. It's not about whether it's monitored, because I don't think, you know, I don't know, Camille, I'd almost be willing to to to. And this is really sort of an off the cuff remark, but I'd almost be willing to say, I mean, personally, since the foodborne illness thing is not my concern or yours at this moment, it's sort of a secondary concern as opposed to what's written in the article. I'd be like, well, if you if you had everything live video feed monitored, I'd be like to me, I I, they're both awful. So it's like I don't really care where the animal is slaughtered as long as the slaughter regulations you know, which are what we have at the moment to uh, take care of this sort of situation are adhered to. So it's like, to me, you know, but that just doesn't seem to be an issue. It's not really part of the discussion at all. No, it's not. And like what I find interesting about this piece, and and I think I agree with you. I mean, I, I think probably slaughtering more animals on farms is likely less cruel than shipping them to slaughterhouses where they've got to endure the stress of transport. And, and endure the stress of the law. Lo- yeah, the environment of more animals being slaughtered. Like, I, I, I don't really take a position one way or another without, you know, all the other factors being put into the equation. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not our job to tell the industry, um, you know, how to do this stuff. But 
Um, I think, yeah, there's there's potentially some benefits to this path, but the way the article is written, the the animal welfare benefits don't factor into it at all. It's just about the economic interests of the producers and whether there might be any food safety risks. Uh, but what I also found interesting about this is is sort of how at the end, um, the this, this Smith woman, she's calling for regulatory changes to be made immediately to address the so-called crisis. Now, they're suggesting perhaps virtual inspections and increasing other types of on-farm slaughters that don't uh, require a licensed inspector to be present under certain conditions. So, uh, but, you know, the, the, the kind of thing I did want to highlight is that the, the meat producers are now saying the situation is now too critical to wait for the results of any public consultations. Well, well that worries and me. <laughs> that worries me too. So, so basically they're, they're sort of manufacturing this crisis. They're saying, oh, we're losing money. This is not ideal for us. And uh, now we need to ram this through immediately without any public input. And I think the public might have some stuff to say about this. I think so too. I think that's, uh, um, I think that's, that's, that's definitely an issue that needs to be concerned. And, and certainly anytime we start to hear emergency and we need to do this, look, anything that's going to allow animal changes to be made without scrutiny is not something I'm going to be excited about. Uh, let me just make one final point, which is, you know, this is an alleged crisis due to a shortage of meat inspectors, slaughter inspectors. I would say that that area is not adequately funded in this country, both at the federal level and likely not the provincial level either. I know more about the federal level. Uh, but sometimes people assume that there's an inspector on hand who oversees the killing of each and every individual animal at the slaughterhouse. That's absolutely not the case. CFIA is present at federally inspected slaughterhouses and sometimes comes out to check and see how things are going for a period of time. Um, there's certainly not a comprehensive oversight uh, scenario over all of these killings. So I just think people should know that and, and know that it may not be as well regulated or overseen as they assume. <laughs> Sorry, that's a statement that applies to every animal. Like you could literally put that as a slogan. <laughs> Couldn't you, Camille? <laughs> it's like, I always used to say that, 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 I still say, so it's not, I always used to say that the, the people people's impressions or assumptions about how animal monitoring takes place versus the reality is like, it's like the grand Canyon of chasms. It's like, it's what you just said is literally a slogan for, for animal advocates. It's never what people think it is. Never, not even close. No, never. Absolutely never. Oh, All right, Peter, funny. next story. So I think the last episode that we were on together, you and I went on quite a rant, especially you, about this Manitoba slaughterhouse that had been convicted of some offenses in relation to humane, inhumane practices. And we were complaining about it because the CFIA kind of put the story out, but they didn't share any information about exactly what the problems were at the slaughterhouse. Rant, now, Camille, I mentioned that. Rant. I've never <laughs> ranted. It was a dignified critique. Well, I, I don't use rant as a negative term. I some, think sometimes a justified rant is more than appropriate. But I think we might have another mini rant coming because this situation appears to be repeating itself. So there's a story from September that we actually missed about a duck slaughterhouse in Asbestos, Quebec, which had its license suspended, not canceled, but suspended by the CFIA. Now, the story, Peter, is from September 3rd. 
Uh, I only came across it kind of randomly because I was flipping through the Ontario Farmer to look at the conference coverage and someone had sent me the clipping. So there it is. Um, Again, not something that got a ton of coverage. And if you look at the CFIA's website statement about this, they basically say they suspended the license. There's no food recall. And they mentioned that they suspended the license for failure to comply with some sections of the humane treatment of food animals in a slaughterhouse. Uh, So, you know, they're saying that there was inhumane action here by the uh, duck slaughterhouse. But again, again, they don't describe anything. Nothing. Nothing about what that was. And it's about to get more mysterious, Camille, because the town of Asbestos, Quebec, no longer exists. I bet you didn't know that, Camille. This is a handy-dandy fact from my home province of Quebec. Uh, Just last week, they changed their name, Camille. (laughs) <laughs> they yeah, want, I mean, who wouldn't want to change their name if your name's want, asbestos? They had to vote. They voted in a referendum. They had to vote because, like, they didn't want to be affiliated with the chemical asbestos anymore. It is now, as of today, like one week ago, Val de Source, Quebec. There is no more asbestos. Oh, wow. that's, a, that's certainly a more tourism-friendly name for your town, I would say. For a town I don't think I would go to asbestos, but I might go to Val de Source. For a by a huge mine. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, I mean, we could, we could, you know, dignified critique what's going on here. Uh, it seems like more of the same. And really, again, um, it makes it difficult. I feel like I'm replaying what I said. We could just push repeat from what we said last time. It, it is it is upsetting that once again, um, we're getting these minimal information about processes that are hard to enforce to begin with. And when these problems do arise, we get so little information that it's hard to know what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's disappointing. CFIA urgently needs to be more transparent. So we are going to follow up on this and try to find some more information. And if we get some, we'll definitely update you listeners. Well, our last story of the day is um, from our friends in the EU, which I'm supposed to be visiting in a short time. And I wanted to raise this for a number of reasons, um, Camille. The story is on the CTV website. And just looking at it, um, I got this wonderful picture. And I got to tell you, as you know, Camille, back in the pre-COVID days, I'm regularly in Europe because my wife is uh, European. So we visit Europe uh, quite often. And it's like, I'm not going to say the food is better there because I don't, I'm not convinced that the vegan food is necessarily better in Europe, Uh, but I will say that it's like, it's always fun to go there because it's just like, it's like the shelves are completely different. Like I will, by the way, stump, like I'm not a a huge, um, I, I did this last time. This is not the first time I've done this little stump speech, but, um, um, where they kick our ass is in yogurt. Like the European yogurt is so ridiculously good. Like, I don't know what it is in Canada. It's just like the market for vegan yogurt is just smaller and you just, you just don't get as many, but it's like, you go to Europe and man, Alpro has that stuff down. Like they have, they have figured it it. out. They have like crazy flavors of every type. Like I go to like, I'm not kidding. My wife lives in the German countryside. Like it is out in the middle of nowhere. And like this tiny little supermarket, which is like not 
not even that big. And they've got like eight different flavors of Alpoi Pro Soy Yogurt. It's this craziest thing. And it's like here, I go to my like mega supermarket in downtown Edmonton. And it's like, I'm lucky if I can find a few sad looking <laughs> yogurt displays that are vegan. Like there's a little bit of uh, Daya and like, and it's super expensive too. Like the Alpro yogurt is like really reasonable. Cause it's like these big tubs. Anyway. Well, let, let me just say, I don't know if th- the situation's probably a little bit different in Toronto, but I've had huge success lately with like really good vegan yogurt, new brands coming on the market. So hopefully that makes its way to Let's you. Let's hope. But-, but anyway, this story is just some uh, reasonably good news from the European Union Commission, um, who... Camille have come to the decision, groundbreaking decision, Camille, that you can label plant-based products, sausages or burgers, even if they don't contain meat. Camille, I don't know about you, but as soon as I hear this, I'm a little bit confused, Camille. Like sausage, vegetarians, I, I don't know, Camille. I sometimes, there have been times I'm thinking I'm buying like meat when it's really a vegan sausage. I don't know, Camille, I'm lost. How on earth are consumers ever going to keep up with all these complicated terms like (laughs) vegan and vegetarian sausage or hot dog or soy steak? It's so confusing. I'm so confused, Camille. You know, I've got to go get my almond beverage and uh, I will will try and figure out what all that means when I'm trying to... You know, because I accidentally, you know, bought some almond beverage when I was trying to get milk. And just, it's just, it's thrown me for a loop, Camille. Yeah. So what an interesting story. So the, the farm community and the meat industry in particular had really been pushing uh, this type of labeling ban. They they were proposing that the European lawmakers restrict plant-based labels so they can't use words like sausages or burgers. Now, if this seems ridiculous to you, I think that's probably the common reaction. I know if you're listening to this podcast, you're already probably inclined to find that ridiculous, but so did most Europeans. Uh, There's never been any evidence in any study that I've seen that anyone's been misled by terms like this. And in fact, the um, largest consumer organization in Europe was uh, praising the uh, politicians for for supporting or for rejecting this and for relying on common sense because they simply don't believe that anybody is misled. And when I first heard about this, maybe a year and a half ago, I think this ban was sort of floated. It just seemed to me like it was destined to fail because you've got at this point these plant-based products so well entrenched in the commercial you know, industry, in the commercial market. Um, they're on the menus at uh, mainstream chains. They're in supermarket store shelves. Like, it's just... It's such a capitalist-friendly way of disseminating these products that I feel like the business interests, except for this small, narrow segment of the meat industry, were never going to be on side. Yeah, unfortunately, I wish it would go for dairy, because if you scroll down in the article, for some reason, dairy can't get over the hump. It's like the dairy industry is very powerful, apparently, even in the EU. (laughs) More powerful, apparently, than the meat industry, because... It's still almond or soy beverage, Camille, and uh, you can't get around that, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I think there was a court ruling a few years ago, 2017. Ugh, a bad court um, ruling. That kind of bad court ruling. It kind of threw a wrench into that. But 
At any rate, we celebrate our friends in the EU. We Congratulations do. on this victory. I know a lot of animal protection groups were working very hard down there to try to make sure that this vote went the, went the right way. So it's a victory for consumer choice and for the plant-based industry. And of course, most importantly for animals. And um, on a final note, just while uh, I brought up uh, soy beverage, I should note, um, Camille, uh, while we're grasping for things to feel positive about as this, you know, year grinds to a conclusion, I should note, and I'm sure you've done the same, that I have started dipping back in already. It's early, but I'm already dipping in, Camille, to the coconut nog. Have you gotten your hands on some nog yet, Camille? <laughs> Hasn't even crossed my mind. I didn't know it was for sale, but I'm telling thanks you, for the heads up. It's never too early. If the temperature went to minus five last week, I was into my first nog. And I just can't wait because like, I'm hoping, have you had like, I'm hoping the peppermint nog comes back this year because I'm a big peppermint nog guy. I Right now they only have natural flavor, but I want the peppermint. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Come on, bring it back so delicious. Are you looking for all the basics for your pantry, but want Canadian organic and natural brands that believe in animal compassion and sustainable eating? Elemento is the Canadian-owned online food market you've been looking for. Elemento carries Canadian brands such as Everland, New World, and the brand new Bliss Balls, which I've tried and love. Elemento believes that everyone deserves a kitchen packed with nutrient-rich, organic, and plant-based foods. Get any of their hundreds of products delivered to your door at elemento.com. That's E-L-I-M-E-N-T-O dot com. Or find endless types of recipes and sustainability tips on social media at Elemento Market. Use code PAWS15, that's P-A-W-S-1-5, to receive 15% off your next order. And now for my interview with Dr. Pamela Ferguson. Dr. Ferguson is a registered dietitian with a PhD in nutrition and over 15 years of experience with changing lives through nutrition. She's worked as a lecturer in nutrition at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine in the UK and Ryerson University, Canada. Now, Pamela and I first met when she was living in Toronto, but she's now in private practice in beautiful British Columbia, Canada. And her work has been featured on just a variety of different podcasts and websites, and she regularly contributes to um, news articles about plant-based nutrition and nutrition more generally. Pamela is also a member of the Dietitians of Canada Leadership Team on Sustainable Food Systems and the Advisory Boards of Balanced and Conscious Eating Canada. She, in addition to having um, such an intense career and such a broad and diverse experience in her work, uh, eats a whole food plant-based diet herself and loves to cook and base, uh, cook and bake with her four children. Pamela, welcome to Bon Order. Oh, thanks so much. I'm just thrilled to be here. Well, we are thrilled to have you. And uh, why don't I start off by just talking about what prompted us to start discussing this week about you coming on Pawn Order. Uh, TV Ontario, so TVO, which is Ontario's publicly funded, provincially mandated broadcaster, announced this week that it was partnering with Dairy Farmers of Ontario to provide health and nutrition information for school-aged children. So as we all know, this prompted a lot of debate. So I wonder if we can start out by chatting about that. So you've been 
somebody who's very prominent in the, in the plant-based nutrition space. And um, I think one of the leading dietitian voices advocating for a plant-based diet and pointing out some of the issues with um, dairy and the way that uh, the dairy industry funds so-called nutritional information. So what did you think when you saw TVO's announcement about this partnership? Well, I was absolutely scandalized, to be honest. I can't believe TVO is making this move. It's extremely irresponsible. I mean, uh, it's clear that dairy farmers of Ontario are acting as a corporate interest group. They are not an education organization. They are certainly not a health organization. Their mandate is to promote and increase sales of Canadian dairy. So we should assume that that's exactly what they plan to do through this partnership with TVO. And TVO has a responsibility in terms of education to our children. And it's completely inappropriate for them to partner with a uh, special interest group who has an agenda to promote their own product, uh, regardless of the health implications of that. Um, and, you know, this partnership is detrimental to our children. And there should be no uh, special interest group uh, promotion within education uh, about nutrition to children. I think a lot of people would agree with you that this this topic is just too important to have you know corporate politics enter the equation and lobby organizations um, that are able to fund expensive campaigns uh, trying to be the ones providing so-called unbiased and impartial health information. Um, it's you know I think your points are well taken about how dairy farmers of Ontario, dairy farmers of Canada. Um, they are definitely industry lobby organizations. That is their purpose. I always harp on, on about this statistic, so listeners will already know that the Dairy Farmers of Canada, in fact, benefits from an $80 million annual marketing budget. And just think of all the school curriculum you can buy with that money. But um, you make a good point about certainly a public broadcaster shouldn't be the ones disseminating this biased information. And when we talk about lobby groups getting their message out there, uh, it reminds me of something interesting that happened uh, close to two years ago now, which is that the Canada Food Guide revisions to where it were issued. And throughout that process, uh, the health officials refused to meet with industry lobby groups. And what we saw at the end of that was a food guide that actually de-emphasizes dairy and removes it as its own category for the first time. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about that and the importance of um, you know, health information being unbiased. Absolutely. Well, I'm so proud of Health Canada for taking a stand and removing any special interest groups, any industry lobby groups, any corporate interests from our food guide. The food guide should be talking about what is beneficial to Canadian health um, and not looking at uh, what is beneficial to Canadian farmers. Um, in terms of their economic progress. Um, so good for Health Canada for taking a stand and saying the food guide is about health and we are going to look at the health 
evidence and make recommendations for Canada's uh, diet based on the research. And in fact, when they did that and when they removed special interest lobby groups from the room, they were able to see that it's clear um, that nutrients that are present in dairy milk, for example, protein and calcium, uh, are important. However, those nutrients are not in any way unique to dairy products. They are abundant in our diet uh, and including in a plant-based diet. It's very easy to meet your protein and calcium requirements without relying on dairy. And the other nutrient that dairy often um, gets credit for is vitamin D. However, they are fortified with vitamin D. Vitamin D is not naturally occurring in dairy. So there are no nutrients that are unique to dairy or that we must consume dairy in order to achieve those nutrients. And therefore, they don't uh, qualify as needing to be protected as a special category within the food guide, a, a food group. So now for the first time, they are uh, included with the other high protein foods. Uh, and we've been encouraged to choose plant-based sources of protein more often from within that group. So this is a big change for dairy and it, dairy no longer has that protected status. And uh, I just can't say enough how proud I am of Health Canada for saying that they won't speak to any, I mean, you know, Canadian lentils shouldn't be in there either. And the broccoli growers and whatever, not, no uh, business interest should be part of that discussion. It should be a discussion about the health of Canadians, um, potentially maybe down the road, also looking at environmental impact of diet, perhaps. Uh, but not in any way looking at uh, the corporate interests of big agriculture. I agree that that just has no place in the scientific discussion about what's the healthiest diet for human beings in Canada to consume. It's also interesting to me, and I'm curious if you notice this in your practice. I mean, we've seen a lot of people shifting away from consuming dairy. Um, I think because they learn more about delicious plant-based options, um, obviously, people of certain ethnicities are largely unable to digest lactose and suffer from, um, you know, discomfort when they consume dairy products. And, you know, we've seen the rise of, of uh, vegan plant-based milks in the marketplace and some decline in dairy consumption. I'm wondering if you see this shift in your own practice. Are you having clients come to you looking for these alternative sources and more information about them? Absolutely, I do. I mean, I think uh, you've made a very important point to say that uh, in Canada, we are a multicultural society. We are also a country built on uh, Indigenous lands. And for Black, Indigenous, people of colour, um, intolerance to dairy is very high. Um, and so to suggest only dairy products as options like in schools or in hospitals or in our food guide is actually taking a non-inclusive or even potentially racist approach to planning our national um, diet. Uh, so that's one important point to consider. Another thing that absolutely is happening, I mean, 
I've been vegetarian. I was vegetarian for many years and then went vegan. But even back when I was vegetarian, I used to buy soy milk, say like 20 years ago. And there was like, I think like one brand of soy milk, soy sensations, you know, and it was pretty good. I liked it. Um, but that was it, you know, and now there's a whole section in the grocery store, like a big section. There's probably like easily 12 different varieties of plant-based milks available in just about any supermarket across Canada now. And even in, um, you know, uh, corner stores, that kind of thing, you can easily buy plant-based milks. These are widely available. Um, so we have seen a decline in dairy consumption. I think it's important to recognize that some people do still consume some types of dairy, but they do also enjoy plant-based milks. And plant-based milks have just become very popular. Um, you know, uh, and I think a lot of adults are recognizing this is not something that adults really want to do to sit down and have a big glass of milk, you know, so it's something maybe that we're using more in um, recipes, in sauces, in lattes, in overnight oats, that kind of thing. That might be the way that as adults we're consuming plant-based milks. And we do have to acknowledge though that the dairy uh, consumption is not necessarily down as a group because cheese consumption is still high, is actually in some spaces still continuing to rise. Fluid milk consumption absolutely is down and plant-based milks are dramatically taking over that space, including the recent meteoric rise of uh, oat milk, which is a Canadian uh, product. Uh, and wonderful to see that. But, um, you know, we do need to acknowledge that cheese is still a big part of the dairy sales and is still um, commonly eaten in Canada. Well, I hope that as plant-based cheeses continue to um, evolve and grow and get better and better every year, that'll start to change too. I certainly remember when Daya first came out with the first vegan cheese shreds and they came to Canada, I think 2009, maybe early 2010. And I was just so amazed at the time and so excited. But when you look back on that period 10 years ago and you compare it to what we have now, oh my God, it's it's you know a, a thousand times as exciting, and I can only imagine what the next ten years will bring. Some of these cashew cheeses, boy oh boy, they're good. Oh, we're just so blessed with all of the um, <laughs> vegan cheeses that we have available now. I have a very anxious Chihuahua here, so <laughs> I apologize that she's interrupting us. It wouldn't um, be a Pod and Order podcast without a dog. That's right. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, yes, the vegan cheese sector is just growing so much and is so wonderful. Um, I really appreciate all of the variety that we're getting. And I think it is getting better and better. Um, you know, I think we are going to still continue to see so much innovation in that area. And I look forward to it because I do have to say, I am one of those people that was like, oh, I don't know if I can give up cheese. And then, of course, now it's no problem. But that actually was a stumbling block for me too um, when I transitioned to being fully vegan. It was for me too. And I hear all yes. the time, I met somebody on the weekend who said that she was almost vegan, but she's having trouble giving up cheese. And I always say to those people, well, then go vegan except for the cheese and work on that right. when you can. But That's I'm right. 
Yeah, actually, I want to give a tip on that to say that when I first transitioned, I'll say to a plant-based diet before I was fully vegan, um, I still included vegetarian Fridays. So for um, about six weeks, I still like had some dairy on Fridays. And I noticed the first week I was like really looking forward to Friday to have some cheese or something like that. And then by, you know, the end of a month or a little bit after that, I was even forgetting about having vegetarian Fridays. Like it became unimportant to me and your taste buds will very quickly change. Uh, and yes, please do explore some of the wonderful vegan cheeses that are available. Now, you mentioned transitioning uh, from eating a largely plant-based diet to going fully vegan. And obviously, there's amazing nutritional benefits to doing so and nothing that you can't get in other foods that dairy offers. But I wonder for you, I know you've been very outspoken about some of the suffering that goes into dairy consumption and dairy production as well. I wonder if you could share with our listeners a little bit about what helped you make that transition and um, how you tried to educate people about dairy industry practices. Absolutely. Uh, I actually initially went plant-based more for environmental reasons and understood that there were also health benefits. Um, but it wasn't until after being plant-based for a little while that I started um, opening my eyes more to the uh, animal cruelty aspects. And I have to say, it's not that I was never exposed to those things before. I actually worked on a dairy farm briefly uh, as a teenager. Um, and so I you know, am aware of dairy. And yet somehow, even though I saw those things, it was like I didn't really see them. And so I do have a lot of compassion still, um, even today for farmers, for um, people who are eating um, animal foods and kind of can't make that connection. Because I will say it was right there in front of my face and I still didn't connect it. I didn't put it together. I still was somehow thinking that, um, you know, dairy cattle needed to be milked and that this was like something that we were doing that was of benefit to them. I could see that their udders were full of milk and this was like something of a relief to um, milk them. And yet I never took the time to think, why would dairy cattle be any different than any other mammal? You know, of course, they must have become pregnant. Of course, there must have been a baby calf in order for them to produce the milk. And yet, um, I didn't initially make that connection. And once I did, I was like, oh, how could I not have seen that? Um, and so, you know, I do really encourage anyone who's listening who hasn't um, thought about that before, the fact that these are mothers. These are mothers who have been forcibly impregnated uh, and producing um, calves uh, in order to keep their production of milk high. And uh, they will continue to go through cycles of giving birth and being milked. Um, their calves are taken away from them um, because they are not going to give that milk to the calves. Um, and uh, then, you know, the milk is taken and given to humans. And this cycle is repeated until the cow is no longer able to produce a high yield of dairy milk. And then the cow is killed. So 
you know, we may think, uh, and I used to think when I was a vegetarian that, well, you know, dairy doesn't kill animals, but it, it definitely does. Um, you know, the uh, mother cow is killed when she comes to the end of her high producing yield years, much before what her natural lifespan would be. And the baby uh, calves, if it's a female calf, she is uh, brought into the same life of uh, forced pregnancy and uh, stolen milk as her mother. And uh, if it's a male dairy calf, uh, they will be slaughtered for veal. And so this is dairy absolutely does kill. And that was something I definitely did not realize as a vegetarian. I was largely in the same boat. I, you know, I think people largely want to avoid causing suffering with their food choices if they can. And dairy is seen as more of a harm reduction strategy for many people than, than eating meat. But uh, the way you explain it, I think, connects with a lot of people. Dairy involves taking a calf away from a mother who's been forcibly impregnated, causing great emotional trauma to both the calf and the mom. And I think the answer to why more people don't realize or appreciate this goes back to, I guess, what we were initially discussing at the top of this interview, which is the dairy industry's immense marketing budget and its, ability, right. yeah, its ability to put forward this warm, fuzzy, family-friendly image of hardworking, salt-of-the-earth farmers who love their cows and are just there to provide for the nutritional needs of Canadians. So um, I know as we've been talking about with the TVO partnership with Dairy Farmers of Ontario, getting them while they're young is a very obvious strategy of the dairy industry. And I know you've been working as well on another education um, initiative that the dairy farmers have launched. Uh, I believe it's a website where they try to provide more educational resources. That's right. So it's the dairy education program that you can find at edu.milk.org. And uh, please do have a look at these uh, modules. Of course, as we've mentioned before, they have a huge budget. And so they're able to produce these attractive um, modules that are available for teachers to use. And we all know the stress that teachers are under right now. Um, and, you know, here you're being handed materials that are all glossy and all produced for you all already in an online format that's so easy to use for teachers who may be delivering some content online or it can be used in the classroom and all on topics that seem to fit in nicely to the curriculum uh, that we're trying to deliver right now. Um, sounds like this would be relevant, for example, social studies, where they're talking to grade six students about feeding the planet and talking about the environmental um, aspects of feeding the planet and why dairy is uh, part of the the efforts that we have to meet our uh, growing issue of uh, huge populations, uh, a lot of world hunger, um, and uh, difficulty with stretching our resources to feed everyone on the planet. Well, let me tell you, dairy is part of the problem in this situation, absolutely not part of the solution. Uh, you know, dairy is a very inefficient way of producing uh, calories and protein. It is, in all cases with animal agriculture, it is always more efficient to have humans simply consume 
the grains themselves uh, for protein and energy rather than trying to give grains uh, to an animal who will then uh, produce either meat or milk uh, for human consumption. Of course, this is a very inefficient system and we receive far fewer calories and grams of protein by filtering um, plant nutrition through animals first uh, rather than feeding directly to humans. And I'm always hearing that argument, oh, if everyone goes plant-based, how are we going to grow enough, you know, um, corn, beans, soy, uh, lentils, you know, for everyone to eat? Well, the reality is it, we will actually need a lot less land in order to be able to produce um, the uh, food that is needed to feed, what are we now, about 8 billion people on the planet as opposed to like 70 billion farm animals? Um, yes, so actually it is much um, more efficient to just feed uh, the humans the grains directly rather than trying to filter through um, animals. Um, so yes, dairy is a poor choice for the planet, for the environment. Um, and this type of uh, indoctrination that's happening with these modules. Um, another module here, a, a grade 11 biology module, goes through all uh, kinds of information about how uh, cows take the feed energy that they um, intake and they use that to produce milk. Well, nothing is discussed in that about the fact that the cow had to become pregnant, that the fluid milk that they're producing is intended for their calf. Um, the, the calf is taken away. This is not discussed at all. It's simply discussed as a matter of converting, uh, you know, grain uh, and, and hay feed energy into fluid milk production. Um, and, uh, you know, this is absolutely not science. This is not biology. This is not educating our children on the full picture. This is instead propaganda. That's exactly what it is. And I've had a chance to look at some of these materials. I have a friend who's a teacher and she gave me this package that the dairy farmers delivered to their schools that teachers were able to use. And what really struck me about it is in line with what you're saying, which is how subtle it is. It's not like it's just one unit that says, here's why dairy is awesome. Here's all these great things about drinking milk. They try to present this overall sort of message, you know, in some cases about the environment and they sort of insert dairy in there as if it's part of the mm -hmm. solution when we all know that it's part of a problem. Um, this brings me to something else I wanted to discuss with you, which is uh, Dairy Farmers of Canada. Have you ever checked out their YouTube channel? I have actually, yeah. <laughs> it's constant. I don't, I mean, I, I see now where they're putting some of this $80 million marketing budget. Because right. It feels like they come up with new ads every month. Right. Uh, I just checked it this morning and the latest set of ads was kind of a follow-up on some greenwashing ads they had previously produced. But they're like, you know, they're longer ads and they talk about environmental qualities that they say dairy espouses. And when you actually break down the claims, it's a lot of like touchy-feely stuff about how much farmers care about the land and care about mm -hmm. the environment and our planet. And it's the definition of greenwashing because they're not addressing any of the actual facts. It's really just trying to promote this feeling of general like, 
um, you know, appreciation for the environment, which of course has no basis in the, you know, the figures about emissions for cows, the figures about manure, but environmental destruction. So, you know, it's clever and, uh, you know, it's, it's something that concerns me. And I'm glad that health professionals like you are educating people about this. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and I think Derry's very careful in that situation to not say anything that could actually be refuted. Do farmers care about the planet? Most likely most farmers do care about the planet. Uh, so, you know, it's... Uh, a situation where they're careful not to use any actual statistics about the impact of uh, dairy on land use or water use um, and how it's actually an inefficient system and cruel system for producing calories um, and contributing to greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, they're careful not to um, make those kinds of claims in their advertising because they would find it difficult to find something that actually is um, environmentally friendly when they get into the facts about dairy. Yeah, it's so interesting. They do walk this fine line between trying to promote their products in this like happy, friendly kind of way, but also avoiding any actual reference to stats. Uh, the one thing they did reference recently is that they said they're responsible for only 1% of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions. And I don't know yet, we're doing a little bit of research to find out where that number might come from, but it strikes me that even 1% of our emissions, mm -hmm. when we have to get mm -hmm. to zero emissions, is mm -hmm. something that we just can't... Um, we just can't abide by, like it's, it's still too high. And for one industry out of tens of thousands of Canadian industries, it's still um, pretty high. Anyway. I agree with you. And I do agree that that number may actually uh, be correct. Although um, it's important to have a look when you are looking at the um, data, uh, if they're only looking at carbon or are they looking at methane as well? That's right. Something that people often forget about, which is that there's many different types of greenhouse gases. Well, yes. the animal justice, we love filing legal complaints against the dairy industry <laughs> because it happens regularly that they skirt a little bit close to that line of truth versus fiction. So, right. Um, a couple of years ago, I think you saw probably, Pamela, that we, we filed some complaints because Dairy Farmers of Canada was partnering with a variety of health charities. Uh, there was the Heart and Stroke Foundation, um, Gosh, I'm forgetting which other ones there were right now, but the claims being made on this massive Canada-wide transit industry were that dairy is a way of preventing these diseases and that if you consume more dairy, that's good for you. Now, I'm wondering what you think about the, the truth of claims like that. Well, I think, of course, dairy is going to be very interested in getting that type of health halo effect where they partner with Heart and Stroke or something which is a trusted organization that Canadians would go to for their health information. I would think many people, if they receive a diagnosis of you know, something related to their heart or if a family member has a stroke, I think one of the first places they're going to go on the, on the web would be to go to Heart and Stroke and to look, okay, well, what advice are they giving about diet and lifestyle? And I think many Canadians would trust that type of messaging. So dairy is very motivated to be in there. Oh, of course, they're going to provide uh, recipes or, you know, provide funding or provide, um, you know, glossy photographs 
uh, that fits with the message that they would like to see. However, there's nothing about dairy that is beneficial for people who um, are at risk of having a heart attack or have potentially had a stroke. Um, generally speaking, dairy is uh, relatively high in protein, but also high in fat, particularly saturated fats, which people who are at risk of heart disease um, are encouraged to limit, uh, to limit severely, and even to almost try to exclude saturated fat and focus instead only on um, mono and polyunsaturated fats, which are uh, prevalent in plant-based foods. They're encouraged to eat a high fiber diet, something that dairy doesn't have any of. There's no fiber in any animal products. It's only found in plants. And uh, so there's really very little to recommend dairy as a nutrient or as, sorry, a food group that would provide any benefit for someone who's been diagnosed with heart disease or diabetes or cancer. Um, you know, so of course, dairy would like to see themselves included in those recipes. They also have been frequent sponsors of Dietitians of Canada, which I have spoken out about year after year um, in concern because they're highly motivated to spend money to receive the health halo effect of being partnered with organizations that Canadians trust for health and nutrition information. And there, by association, they appear to also be healthy. The health halo effect. I, I like that term. I think that very accurately describes what they're up to. So Pamela, I'm wondering, uh, as we start to wrap things up, we hopefully by the end of this interview, people understand that if you see the blue cow logo, logo of the Dairy Farmers of Canada on information, it's not coming from an unbiased source. But where would you recommend as a dietitian that people go if they do want accurate, unbiased information about nutrition? Well, that's actually, a, you know what, that's actually a really tough question. Um, you can certainly come, I don't want to just promote myself, but you certainly can come to my own website, uh, PamelaFerguson.com, or find me on Instagram or on Facebook, DrPamela.rd on Instagram. Um, you can uh, visit, you know, Toronto Vegetarian Association has a vegan starter pack, uh, that you can look at. Challenge 22 is another uh, place that you can go to get some good uh, nutrition information and a 22-day meal plan. Uh, but to be honest, we need some more unbiased health resources. Uh, nutritionfacts.org, uh, Dr. Michael Greger's website is pretty good and it certainly has lots of different information on almost any health topic uh, that you might have questions about. But we need more funding for unbiased uh, health information available freely on the web. I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, when we get the influence of that health, uh, sorry, of food industry money out of health information, we see that truly amazing things can happen, just as the uh, Canada Food Guide recently proved. That's so, right. Dr. Pamela, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wisdom with Pond Order listeners. And I hope we'll have you back again someday. I would love that. Thanks so much. Heroes and Zeros. All right, now All right. it's time 
For everybody's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Now, All right, Peter, who's our hero? Yeah, well, I flagged this on social media already. So anybody who's been following me on social media this week, look, if you're a law student and you want to do some animal law and your professor in an ordinary garden variety course throws you an assignment and you decide to take that assignment and make it all about animals, as was your choice, and then go the extra mile and get it published so that people can read about this problem, you're going to be a hero on Paw and Order. That's just the way it is. <laughs> Congratulations to Rachel Mills. So Rachel is a 1L first year uh, student at UNB. And uh, Peter, her law professor, highlighted this great piece that she wrote on Twitter. Nicole O'Byrne. Nicole, oh, geez, what could I say about Nicole? I, I don't know. I can't even joke about it. Nicole's a good friend of mine. She said something nice. She highlighted this piece, which is about animal testing. And it's a great little piece about what's wrong with the criminal law and why it doesn't extend and permits certain things to take place. Lots of horrible things to animal testing in Canada. And of course, Camille, a bugaboo of ours, a certain bill that didn't make it through. Where did it get stuck, Camille? Hmm. I wonder if it was the Senate. Mm, yeah, unfortunately. No, actually, we're talking about Bill S-214. It was the House. Sorry, I apologize. That was the, the cruelty-free <laughs> cosmetics act. It started in the Senate. It got delayed in the Senate for yeah, a long I, I time remember because the of machinations. Yeah. yeah. But it actually died in the House when um, the election was called last year. So unfortunately, cosmetic testing on animals is still uh, not outlawed yet in Canada. But Rachel writes very um, intelligently, I'd say about why it should be and um, why moving beyond cosmetic testing at this point is just something that needs to happen for society. And she references the criminal code. She talks about uh, some of the problems with trying to apply the criminal code to industrial animal cruelty situations. And overall, it's just a really well-written piece. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, never, never too soon, a reminder to all of you law students out there doing work in your animal law courses, like there is always a need for greater discourse of these issues online and uh, putting your well-written, well-thought-out pieces out there is uh, certainly something that might get paw in order to sit up and take notice. So congratulations, and let me Rachel. just Congratulations. And let me just, on that note, Peter, give a, a plug for the Animal Justice Clubs, which exist now at most Canadian law schools. Uh, if you want to get plugged into a club, I suggest, you know, checking around the law school community to see what's there if you're a student. And if you can't find anything, get in touch with us and we can help you set up a club. Now, one cool thing that's happening this year is that uh, student club's lawyer, Samantha Skinner, she's coordinating clubs. She's hosting a series of workshops to help students figure out how to write about animal law topics, no matter what issue it is that they're studying. So if you're in a natural resources course or a health law course or whatever, there's usually a way to make your paper about animal law. So Sam can help you figure that out. Fantastic. Well, for every right. uh, every hero, Camille, we know has to be balanced out by a big fat zero. Who do we got today, Camille? Well, a general shout out to the mink farmers of Canada. They are going to be our zero in this episode. So the reason for this, it was prompted by uh, reading a, a CBC story out of Newfoundland and Labrador. 
where it talks about how COVID-19 outbreaks at foreign mink farms have fur breeders in Canada and in Newfoundland and Labrador in particular <laughs> on high alert. Oh, God. So I just am feeling so overwhelmingly frustrated by the mink industry right now. So minks, unfortunately, are very susceptible to catching human uh, viruses like human influenza. And now we know that they're also vulnerable to COVID-19, which they are catching from humans. So in Europe, in the United States, minks have been infected with COVID and they've had to be killed at really high, um, appalling, disturbing rates well, because of this. And when I say they had to, they had to be killed, um, the industry chose to kill them. Yeah, I was about um, to say. <laughs> Camille, there's no problem here with COVID because as, <laughs> as the Mink Breeders Association says in the article, we will just euthanize all the animals to control the disease and ensure that it doesn't spread. Problem solved, Camille. Yeah. Yeah, it's really gross. Oh, and they also are complaining about how, like, there's different types of minks. So some minks are born and they're killed for fur right away, but other minks are kept specifically for breeding. And, oh, gosh, if those breeding animals, which have been bred for specific genetic traits, had to be euthanized, it would be a substantial loss for breeders. So, Peter, this kind of comes back to why the heck do we have mink farms in the first place? Why are we allowing these festering centers of cruelty to continue to exist in a situation where they could very well enhance the spread of COVID and leave us more susceptible? Uh, this industry is already facing serious economic downturns. Um, pelt prices for minks used to be about 100 bucks. Now they're down to about $40. In Newfoundland, there's just six farms left in the province. It is time for the government to buy these operations out so and move on. On the bright side, though, right, Camille? Six years ago, it says 25 mink farms in Newfoundland and Labrador are now down to six. Like, that's trending in the right direction. And it's yeah, like, it's absolutely. like, I don't know, it, you know, you read through this article and of course the industry wants compensation like everybody else from what's going on for COVID. And I'm just like, man, I agree with you. It's time to buy them out. And that would be the end of it. Like buy out the licenses and exterminate the industry. Pardon the, you know, usage of the word, but just exterminate it once and for all. And that would be the end of it. And it's like, there are times when it's just time to move on. And it seems like the mink trade is one of those one of those places where it wouldn't be an economic. It's not like we're talking about getting rid of, you know, things that we are not ready at this stage in our history to economically move on from um, the 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 um, loss of the trade and the bad feelings that it's gotten has essentially pushed this to the brink. And I think we can give it a nudge to push it over the edge and compensate breeders who have been encouraged to do this. And I know that bothers some people, but it doesn't bother me. They've been encouraged to do this by permissive government policies. Certainly don't subsidize them any further. It's time to move on. Like that's the way it needs to go. And it's interesting that we talk about moving on, Camille. I dug out some old magazines that I had in my house that I had buried away for a long time. I won't get into why, but it's really interesting to read through the ads in those magazines. And I swear to God, one of the ads in the 1980s, I'm reading through this magazine from 1983, and it's got this huge ad for this really cool new modern typewriter, Camille. And it's like the mink farms are the typewriter farms, <laughs> the typewriter <laughs> businesses. Nobody lost any sleep for those poor typewriter organizations that were swiftly put out of business. This is just the way society changes. Some industries become obsolete as technology evolves, as social attitudes evolve. And fur is just so obviously one of those industries right now. If you yeah. look at the global scene, countries are banning fur left and right. So, seems, seems uh, inevitable you know, to me. 
Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, on that note, what an episode. It was great to be back. Great to be back, Camille. I look forward to catching up with you. Uh, I think I have one more visit before our uh, Christmas extravaganza. Until then, we will try to survive and make it through it all. All right. Signing off. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcaster. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order, if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Pawn Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!